Well, as we, uh, as we continue our conversation about Gideon, we actually bring to it a, a close for this Sunday. Um, we're going we're gonna to kind of split things up and do things in probably three parts uh, this morning. The first part uh, will be, we'll finish in Judges chapter 8, uh, kind of the concluding kind of remarks over uh, the life of Gideon. Um, and then I'll welcome Chris back up as we talk a little bit about the application and return to our uh, starting question. And then I'll step down and leave it for the third part for him to uh, finish off uh, at the end um, uh, to then with kind of as again as we celebrate even one year of, of uh, South Spring Baptist Church, we're going to be moving into the next couple of weeks looking at identity, who we are, who we are as a church, uh, and what do those things mean and how do they, how they affect our lives. So um, that is the plan. Uh, hopefully we'll get through it, um, but perhaps we've, perhaps not. We've already prayed this morning that the Lord comes, so maybe he'll come uh, right in the middle, and that'll be, wouldn't that be wondrous? Wouldn't that be great? Um, I had a, uh, a professor um, who always loved to remind us um, that when, when it comes to preaching, may you preach with such uh, fervor that, you, um, that, that the people in the congregation just lend themselves to pray, yes, indeed, amen, Lord, please come. Um, but never fail, even when you mess it up uh, and are just boring and bland. Don't worry, the people are already praying that. Uh, Lord, come, deliver us, uh, take us out of it. But whatever it is uh, that it is this morning, hopefully that that will be our prayer together. Um, but we jump back into our story with Gideon um, because we've, uh, if you've been with us kind of through these weeks, we've been on quite the roller coaster, right? We've been on this up and down. Uh, back and forth kind of through this story where we see uh, Gideon kind of starting with um, uh, great, great hope and great promise uh, only to kind of let us down with kind of some doubt and some fear. Uh, and then we kind of see him capture that message again and rise up only to not, not quite get it right or do it the way that we think. Uh, if you remember way back to even how we started, right, Gideon was um, introduced to us as he was threshing wheat down in a wine press, not on the hillside, because he was fearful of the, of the Midianites coming and steer, stealing um, his food. Uh, because again, the pattern that we had seen all through the book of Judges has once again happened to the people of Israel. Uh, they have found peace. They have found comfort. They thought they were doing it uh, well. And so they, they started doing it on their own. Um, and they started even maybe perhaps not just taking the Lord's provision for them, but adding to the Lord's provision, uh, trying to intermix idol worship uh, into uh, their spiritual lives. And, uh, and, and that, of course, then doesn't work for them. Um, and with their sin uh, comes uh, the Lord's hand to then allow their sin to move them into the consequence of the sin. Uh, and he turns them over uh, into the hands of the Midianites um, and the hard-headedness of these people that we can all relate with, right? It takes seven years of oppression, seven years before they finally call out upon the Lord again, please save us, redeem us. Uh, and so the Lord provides through the hand of a judge, uh, and the angel of the Lord comes down to Gideon and gives him that great call, you will deliver my people, right? And this message, uh, messenger of the Lord, perhaps the pre-incarnate Jesus, hails Gideon as a mighty warrior and gives him this great call. Uh, and we would expect then that to just play out and move straight into the battle scenes. Um, but if you remember back to our first week, we get this interlude um, because God stops there and says, now before we get to all that, I need you to do a couple things. One, I want to remind you who I am. I need you to remember who I am. So go tear down that idol because there are no other gods before me. It's not how this works. Remember who I am. 
And then we get an interaction with Gideon because of who God is. He wants to remind Gideon that then he is strong enough to be uh, an object of faith for Gideon. So put your faith in me. So remember who I am and respond to me in faith. And then we moved into our, finally, our battle sequence, right? Um, where then we get the waning down to 300, uh, and, and God, who, who's declared himself this battle, is going to be about my glory. At least the Israelites take credit, so he makes the number small, and he takes a step again graciously to, to expose Gideon's lack of faith uh, and provide miraculously a vision to comfort him. So again, saying, yes, put your faith on me. And we ended last week with finally kind of that, that resolution feeling in the roller coaster ride. We finally kind of got there where it's like, oh, all is right, because Gideon finally takes that faith. Uh, he's moved from fear uh, to faith, and then now he is gone, and he has accomplished the purposes that God has called him. Uh, and he has driven out the Midianites um, with the Lord's help, uh, and then we finally kind of sit back and feel like, yes, oh, we've arrived. We're finally here, Gideon's come to faith. He's recognized his purpose, and he's accomplished it. And so here we are on that roller coaster, pulling into the landing track. But like any good roller coaster, right when you think it's all good at the end, right, there's that one last drop, right? That always gets you, sneaks up on you. And that's how we actually close uh, our time together. And so uh, looking down at verse 22 of uh, chapter 8 of the book of Judges, um, again, Gideon has, has gained this national attention, this notoriety amongst all the people, because clearly uh, there's no mistaking that God was at work and he was working through Gideon to deliver his people. And so the people ask him to be their king. It says, then the men of Israel uh, said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Uh, I love this kind of this is the step of, of how much awe they have. They're, they're so, so enamored um, with the work that has been provided through Gideon. They, they want more of that. They've tasted what is good, and they want more. So they're saying, rule over us, Gideon, and not just you, your son also. And not just your son, you're also your grandson. Like, we want this, uh, this blessing and this provision to last on and on and on. Uh, so they ask Gideon uh, to rule over them. And look what he says in verse 23. Wisely, Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. What a great proclamation. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon says, no, no, no. It's not about me, not me being king. Uh, it is about the Lord being king. I won't rule over you, but he needs to rule over you. In fact, this is even what his uh, son's name means. Abimelech uh, means that uh, the father, my God, father is king. And so he's, he's saying with his mouth and his lips, he's proclaiming a great truth here um, that it is not, this is not credited for me, but only the Lord rules over you. And I wish we could stop there, right? There's part of me that wishes like, good, Gideon's got it right, he's accomplished it, and he's given credit where credit is due. But unfortunately, it continues. And... There's another part of me that is glad that it continues. Because on the one hand, I want to end with this all being a nice, clean resolution, but the other half of me is so comforted uh, by Gideon yet again um, entering into the equation and messing things up and being de dependent upon God to put them right. So here's, here's how it continues in verse 24. And Gideon says to them, right after this proclamation, Gideon says to them, let me make a request of you, each one of you. Give me the earrings from his spoil." And then we get an author's note here, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Of course, I'm glad we got that answer. Uh, verse 25, and they answered, uh, we willingly give them. 
uh, and they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil, uh, and the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, uh, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and beside the collars that were around the necks of the, cam- of the camels. And then in verse 27, and Gideon made an ephod of it. Gideon takes all the spoils. He asks them from the spoils of war, toss in all your gold, and they gather this great amount of gold, and then Gideon goes and makes an ephod. At this point, you may be thinking, well, isn't that not so bad, right? Haven't we run across ephods already in Scripture? Isn't that a part of the tabernacle tabernacle worship uh, that God has ordained with his people? And indeed, it is. Um, And there's a couple possibilities about what this ephod could mean, Um, and one of which is that Gideon is making a replica of the golden ephod that the high priest would have worn in worship. Now, the ephod just basically means garment or clothing or covering. Uh, and so the high priest, is, as was set up, to, to signify uh, that as he entered into uh, worship, that there was something different and special about that, uh, that he would clothe himself in an ephod, a golden ephod. So maybe he's making an exact replica of that, trying to take upon himself the role of a high priest uh, and wants to lead his people into worship of God, maybe. Another possibility is that he's not trying to actually step into the high priesthood, um, but rather he's just trying to uh, still facilitate worship. So he wasn't trying to create the golden ephod of the high priest, but rather he was creating a separate ephod with just a lot of gold ornamentation around it. Um, and that, that may be a, a possibility as well. Um, but probably most likely, and the text seems to indicate that the third possibility is really what uh, is going on here, is that what Gideon is doing uh, here is that he is, in fact, um, not making a, a, a proper or acceptable garment for proper worship of God and God alone, but what he is doing is he is fastening together an idol. An idol. To bring back to the equation uh, that this is, this is God who will rule over us, but also we can have this on the side. But this will also help. The equation kind of plays out that it's, it's kind of Gideon who's made this great proclamation. The Lord will rule over you, not me as king, but I still have something I can give here. I can still play into this and provide something that we're missing. The Lord rule and he is enough, but then also, why don't we have this idol that we can construct? It's likely this idol that is being spoken of here um, uh, as, as an ephod, because really the book of Judges uses ephod um, uh, kind of as a shorthand term for just, again, a covering. And so, in fact, later we'll see in uh, chapter 17 that when Micah fashions together an ephod, uh, it is, in fact, a covering over an idol. And so it is uh, idol worship that is, that is being communicated um, by just the shorthand an ephod. And so here Gideon again tries to jump back into the equation by providing this form, this ephod, this idol. And we get a couple hints again that this is probably the possibility. One, because it's 1,700 shekels of gold. That's a lot of gold. That's about 50 to 75 pounds of gold. Um, that's a, that would be a very, very ornate gu- uh, garment. And so it's probably that it's a graven image out of gold with a covering on it. Um, Moreover, we see that in verse 27, as it continues, uh, that this, this ephod is, at least in its demonstration, not something that is the typical way that we would think of it, because Gideon props it up and displays it. And then there's some fascinating language here. 
So far that this fascinating language provides some scholars to not just conclude that this is a, not just an idol added back in, but in fact this is Gideon recreating an idol uh, uh, of Baal, a sat, the very sacrifice that he was charged to go and tear down in his father's court that he's rebuilding. Why some commentators think that is because of, of what, uh, what, is, what the language is being used here to describe what the effect of this idol is on the people of Israel. Because again, if you can remember back and think about Baal worship on that Wednesday night that we covered um, what it was to worship Baal, and we covered it on a Wednesday night because here with young crowd, it would be harder to explain. If you can think about that picture of what it is and then listen to the language, uh, jumping back in verse 27, and Gideon made an ephod of it, and he put it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel hoard after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. That's just the ESV that I was reading from. Other translations, you may have a different translation. Um, the NIV says, all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping there. The NASB says, uh, all Israel played the harlot. Again, the exact nature of this ephod isn't isn't fully disclosed, but apparently its purpose is extremely clear. This is an object uh, that the people have sought after provision in the idol itself and not from the great provider. And this is kind of where we are in the story. We've watched Gideon move from fear to faith, and then now we've seen that with success in his faith, he's moved from faith to perhaps self-assuredness. And he says, it isn't just about what, I, uh, what you have proclaimed to me and what you have done to me. It is about what I can offer back in. The, the dangerous slippery slope of when success moves us not just from uh, fear to faith, but then takes our faith and allows us to place it back in our self-assuredness, the ways that we grapple for how we can provide. And this is the danger of taking God's provision and assuredness of faith and making it about your self-assurance and provision is because you enter yourself back into the equation. When Chris and I talked to, uh, about even kind of like titling this, perhaps uh, our conversation this morning or the sermon, um, we, we were hearkened back to the days of um, when, we, when we were working through uh, the passage in Ephesians and we came to the great truth and the phrase that we camped out on for so long, uh, but God. Right? But God, how powerful when we run across scripture, uh, when we have hopelessness presented to us, and then, but God, then following the hope that comes. As Ephesians says, we are dead in our trespasses and sin, but God being rich in mercy. Here we run into this morning not a sermon, just a, or not a, not a telling of uh, a but God alone, but now it seems like Gideon wants to chime in there and say, but Gideon. Yes, God, but Gideon. Yes, all those things that were good, but also me. And again, to the shame, um, but yet at the same time, the great comfort. Uh, this is the story and the concluding chapter uh, on Gideon that we have. So I invite Chris back up um, because we need to take that in mind and jump back to the very beginning of how we even started this whole conversation, right? Um, because we started with um, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, making a proclamation to Gideon, hail mighty warrior. And then now we've seen this whole story play all the way out, this roller coaster ride to the end. And so we need to ask ourselves the question we started with, is Gideon really a mighty warrior? Is he this man of valor that the Lord proclaims? 
Yeah. <clears throat> so anytime we talk about Gideon, um, there was a, a program, a, a, a discipleship program that Paul and I used to work together with and to work on that was, um, we, the way we wrapped up the whole program was with a study of Gideon. And, and really was this main question at the end, was Gideon a mighty warrior? So when you have God himself, it seems, bestowed, come, come to Gideon and say, hail Gideon, mighty warrior. But Gideon doesn't seem to get that truth. And in fact, it takes Gideon a while to catch on to it. He seems to get it at some point, but then it's like he continues on past it. So it's, it's not enough now that Gideon is a mighty warrior. Um, Gideon has now decided, apparently, that he's some kind of a priest. Um, again, even under the best interpretation, even, even if you give Gideon the best benefit of the doubt of him making an ephod, it's still him claiming something for himself that only God is allowed to give. Um, whether it's king, which it seems to be, I'm going to, no, no, God's going to lead you. I mean, I'm going to lead you. But God, God's going to lead you is really me, though. And, no, no, God's going to lead you, but we're going to need to, we're going to need to access God through this ephod that I'm making from the gold of our enemies and, and this idol that I've created. This, this is a great, this is a real problem. Because he's, he didn't get it, then he seems to get it, then he loses it, runs past it. So what does that say about that original statement when, when the angel of the Lord declares, Hail Gideon, mighty warrior. And one of the things that we wrestle with and our culture, as the American culture, has completely lost a handle on. Just, just understand, you will get no wisdom on this from our culture anymore. None of us will, um, unless something turns around. And that is the concept of bestowed identity. One of the questions that we would ask these young men sitting around a campfire was, um, are you godly? So, yeah, and I think it would be an appropriate question for us to even stop and consider even this morning. If I were to ask you, if we said, you know what, we're done talking, testimony time, I want to hear from you guys. I want you to say and proclaim, are you a godly man or a godly woman? Are you a man of God or a woman of God? And that so many times when we, would, when we stop, and if we were honest with ourselves and we reflect, the turmoil inside that we would watch these young men go through is on one hand, they very much want to answer yes. Well, yes, I am godly. I follow after God. I want to devote my life to him, so yes, I'm godly. But then when we ask them to, if they would identify that or proclaim that, there's always this tinge, this kind of doubtful moment. Maybe you even feel that this morning of, yes, I am godly, but I also know I got this kind of sin in my life. Yeah, I want to be there, but I also kind of got this, I know, this junk that's not quite there. Or yes, I'm, 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 I'm godly, but I know there's so much more I can do. How, how much more time I know I need to spend in prayer. How much more I need to be reading his word. How much I need to be giving uh, and how much more of a neighbor I need to be to my community the, the, the list of either comes of, yes, I want to be this, but there's either these things that I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing, or perhaps there's things that I should be doing that I'm not, that want us to not perhaps claim that as it is. But again, the fault in that kind of battle comes when we, we notice we get doubt in that, in that possibility when we add ourselves to that equation. It is when we start looking about the things that we have done or haven't done that then we start to doubt it. And I think that gives us a hint that perhaps because we've added ourselves in and we now have doubted that maybe ourselves should have never been added in and we should have stopped just at the proclamation from God alone. 
Yeah, that's so the angel of the Lord appears and says, Hail Gideon, mighty warrior. This is God himself bestowing identity on the Gideon. And when God speaks something like this, it is, it is true because he speaks it. God has proclaimed this over Gideon. Wow. God has proclaimed this over Gideon. This is, this is who you are. The fact that Gideon, that that's a slippery concept for Gideon, doesn't change the truth right. of the proclamation. This is who you are. This is a bestowed identity. And in a, in a culture where we resist every form of bestowed identity, this is truth, this is value, this is meaning, and we go, no, you don't get to tell me that. No one gets to tell me that but me. I'm the only person who gets to decide who and what I am. I don't accept anybody else's. That's just, I mean, that's delusional. Mm-hmm. It's insanity, but it, it's, it doesn't change the truth. So, so those of you who are married... Are, are there days when you're not married and days that you are married? Or are there days when you're better at living out being married and, and worse at living out being married? Is there that? But notice it doesn't change the truth of it. Ephesians 4.1, and there's a lot of these passages. Ephesians 4.1 is, is the verse that we would always take these young people to, where Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Hmm. Our natural temptation is to think, God is telling us, you, listen, you you got you to gotta figure this thing out. you got to build an identity for yourself. I don't, you got to figure this call. You've got to get a calling for yourself versus accepting the fact that God has placed callings upon us and we need to live a life worthy of those callings, not create them. That's the, that's the error in our thinking is that we're not less married on the days that we aren't living a life of, as though we're married doesn't make us less married. It just makes means we're not living a life worthy of the calling that we have. We're not living according to the identity God has given us. And there's so many of these. Um, what else, what else yeah, did you want to I think it's, it's also, I mean, again, it's about our reference that needs to change. Um, we used to always put it as this. If the, if the Lord Jesus showed up this morning and came and greeted all of you and said, what a <laughs> wondrous day that it is looking outside at my uh, pink clouds that I have created for you. And we'd all look outside and look up at the clouds and think, that's gray. Or do we sit there and say, you know what? I've been thinking wrong about the color gray apparently my whole life. <laughs> because if anybody knows what a color is, then it should be the Lord, so it's pink, right? This is our, our struggle into this is, is, again, knowing that we may have a disposition that wants to change the fact of our calling, wants to say that we play a part of the equation, but in all reality, it is that we need to understand that God's come in and proclaim this on us. Thus, how do we live a life that reflects the calling he's given? You know, Chris and I would oftentimes explain, because we share this um, even in our own lives, uh, the power of adoption, because both of us have adopted children. And so um, it is, is, you know, if I turned and asked Chris, Chris, what did Emma do to become a leg? What was Emma credited with on her merit to become a part of your family. Yeah, nothing. She had no vote. Yeah. And may, may, regret, may regret someday not <laughs> yeah. having a say in the matter, but she got no vote. Yeah. And then, and similarly, the conversation is, what could she do that would make her lose that right? Yeah, this, this to me is even, for us, especially in, a, in an evangelical church, is, is just as powerful to, to hear the answer to this question, which, of course, is nothing there's nothing she could do. She could be in denial of the fact that she was my daughter. 
Um, she, could, she could be a rebellious child. Mm-hmm. She could be um, the child of a dead father. Um, but she can't change that relationship. It is, it is a done deal. There's no changing it. And I, listen, I know that in our delusional legal system that nowadays she apparently, she could file an injunction to be, that's just, that's just delusion. That's just denial. It does not actually change the truth of the matter that she is my child and got no vote in it. She can't become through her behavior more my daughter. Mm. Nor can she become, through her behavior, less my daughter. She can live as though she wasn't, but that won't change, that won't change the truth of it. You're instilling her. You want her to live out a leggy, leg-like? Leg-like. Know, leg-like. Be fine, yeah. <laughs> a leg-like character. But even when she messes up and even when she fails at that, or even when she doesn't demonstrate that, it doesn't change the fact that she's... She's been adopted. She's been sealed. She's been called in as a leg. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the same thing that we get from Ephesians here, that it is our calling bestowed that has sealed us into that fold. And now the question is, is are we going to live according to that? Or are we going to try to live according to something else? Maybe, yes, that, but then also this other thing that's going on. Yes, what God has proclaimed, but also what I can kind of add. And I think that's kind of worth our, our merit of conversation, um, even this morning, as we now segue into uh, what this means, this truth means about our own identity and even our identity as South Spring Baptist Church. So yeah. pass it off to you. Thank you. Um, so when you, when you imagine this, this idea of, of an identity bestowed, when you consider this idea that God has proclaimed certain things over his people, he has declared certain things for his, his church. He is the only one allowed to do this. Um, he, he allows us, out of his generosity, to be an active member of our own identity. But he is the one who bestows certain things on us and the things that matter most about us. Um, this is, this is what, part of what's so destructive. What I was so worried about um, 20 years ago when postmodernism began to creep its way into more and more into the church and the way of thinking, especially the one aspect of postmodernism, which is that, that there's, no one who, there's no external source for anything. No one out there gets to tell me anything about me. My culture can't tell me anything about me. My genetics can't tell me anything about me. And certainly there's no God who gets to tell me anything about me. Well, that's going to leave the massive portion of your identity empty. Because you can tell yourself all kinds of things, but you cannot bestow certain things upon yourself. And some of the most vital aspects of identity, are ha- they have to be bestowed. Um, and we see, in this case with Gideon, uh, in a couple of weeks I'm teaching at Wayne Broderick's church which was part of the deal. He was going to come preach here and I go preach there. And so in a few weeks, I'm going to go preach there. And what I'm going to do is, given what we've been talking about, is I'm going to, I'm going to pit Gideon's understanding of this bestowed identity against Boaz's understanding. Because remember when we, when we kind of raved about Boaz and especially those two magical Hebrew words about that, that the mighty, mighty, the, the warrior of warriors, the mighty warrior, the same words that are used here with Gideon. But Boaz seems to get how to live this out. And maybe he's not as flashy, maybe not as dramatic, but he seems to get how to live out this idea of being a mighty man of God. But, but God has bestowed certain things upon us, and he speaks them into us. 
And we can decide to live as though that's not true. We can live in defiance of that. That just makes us rebels. Um, that, that can give us all types of awful titles. But this is, this is the issue. The greatest risk to our Christian lives is our agenda. The greatest risk to us living the life that God has for us is us. It's our mindset. It's our belief that we have this figured out the way we want to do it. And, and somehow we think that's acceptable as if that's not the same thing as making ourselves our own high priest, our own king, or worse, our own God. That's what, it, that's what we're doing when we declare those things and we say, no, no, this is what is right. Well, what does God say? doesn't make any difference to me. What God says, what matters to me is what I say, what I want. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me that the same, and by the way, this applies not only in our individual lives, but not surprisingly to us as a community. The greatest risk to any church are the agendas of the people in the church. It is by far the greatest risk. It's the greatest challenge we face. Anyone who's been on the leadership board in the, in the years at least that I've been here will tell you the greatest risk we have faced year after year after year are our own agendas. Our own beliefs about how this should be done, our own wisdom is always the greatest threat that we run into. And so constantly trying to set that aside, which by the way, of course, we're terrible at. We're terrible at living out these callings that God has given us. Thankfully, he bestows them on us anyway. Even when, like Gideon, we can't seem to get it right consistently, Gideon gets to be a mighty warrior and to go down through all of history as a mighty warrior because God said he was. And there's no, there's no, discussion, there's no, there's no discussion over the identity of that. Now, did he choose to live as though he isn't? Sure, and apparently ends his life living as though he isn't a mighty warrior of God. How sad and tragic but it doesn't change the truth. It doesn't change the truth of who we are. It doesn't change the truth of who Gideon is. When we decide to be our own kings, we just look silly or stupid or rebellious, evil, any of those things. Um, I will tell you, it's, it's, it's a natural thing. You know, we, we are either people who sin, who are aware of this fact. We're people who need a Savior and who are aware of it. Or people who need a Savior and aren't aware of it. Those are the only two choices we have. Whether you're a believer or not, you still need a Savior. You still need someone to be saving you, mostly from ourselves and our own agendas. We're our own worst enemies. Especially any of you who have ever engaged with any type of addiction, you know this to be true. We are our own worst enemies. What's that? There was an old cartoon years ago that we have met the enemy, and he is us, right? So, as we engage with setting aside what it is, our own agendas, our own philosophies, our own beliefs, as much as we possibly can and absorbing the identity and the calling that God has given us, that is the goal. And it requires the miracle of him living out in our lives. The same Christian who would sit and, and mock or not understand or, or slap their forehead about someone who denies bestowed identity, like, like say, Caitlyn Jenner, who has, who has denied bestowed identity. It's the same Christian who would like mock that or, or slap their forehead about that. It's trying to fill their lives by adding up cash in their 401k, which is a denial of the calling that God has on us. 
Or do you think that by education or physical fitness or any of those types of things that we can prop up, we can create an identity for ourselves, you are no less delusional than someone who is trying to change what sex they are. It is still in defiance of the identity that God has bestowed upon us. It's the exact same issue. We have to, and by the way, none of those things, 401ks and physical health, none of those are evil. But as the foundation for identity, they're awful. They will crumble underneath. They are sand, and when the storm hits, poof. Some of you know that. Some of you are in that. Some of you, that's this year for you. Some of us, it's next year that whatever poor foundation we built our identity on, God will, God will finally bring a storm that will test that next year. I don't know. That's why it's vital that we build our identity on the, on, the, on the identity, on the things that God has bestowed. What are some of those things? What are some things that God has called us? Through participation. What's that? Holy. Good. We partake in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Priest. Child. Heir. Clean. Blameless. Forgiven. Loved, worthy, faithful, what was that? Co-ruler, redeemed, proclaimer, we should be able to go on for a long time. There are a lot of them. He has bestowed identity on us like crazy. We, we may defy that. God doesn't tell us that we should somehow figure out how to become salt and light. He tells us that we are salt and light, for example. These are things that he tells us that we are. It's even funny to see Jesus when he's talking to his disciples. It sounds like he's delusional. But at one point, they're all arguing about who's going to be the best. And he says, listen, among the Gentiles, in that case meaning non-believers, among the non-believers, they all fight to find the top position. But not you. Which the irony in that is that's exact, they actually are in the midst of doing that when he says, that's not that way with you. It's not narcissistic for God to declare reality. It's only narcissistic when we declare reality. He declares reality. No, no, that's not the way it is with you. Actually, we were just, I just said it wasn't that way. It's like my dad telling me stuff, right? Hey, you need to take the, you, I need you to be taking the trash out. I don't, I'm not taking the trash out. No, you're taking the trash out. Actually, I'm sitting here playing a video game. Pretty sure you're taking the trash out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, you know, now that you say it that way, I think maybe I am taking the trash out. <laughs> There's an identity when, he, when God declares stuff to us, when God speaks these things into us, we can find rest in that. Especially, I don't know, I don't know exactly how, obviously, I don't know what it's like to be a teenage girl. I know what it's like to be a teenage guy. And I was taught during my teenage years that if I would just do certain things, and more importantly, not do certain things, then I would be pure. And I remember the first time hearing that and knowing I was doomed. That I had no capacity to accomplish these things I was being told I was supposed to do to become pure. That's why I love teaching um, that, those things, to, especially to teenage boys, to tell them, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have confessed your sins, then he has been faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are pure. And you can't get any more or any less pure than he makes you. Now, 
Live a life worthy of that. Live a life worthy of this thing that God has declared upon you, that you are pure, for example, that you are mighty. That's what he calls us to. That's, that's, that's our theology, who our God is, which better not be us or some ridiculous idol in our lives. And we may not, we may not make gold ones and then actually mold a statue out of them. We just take the gold ones and we check the value of gold in our stocks. That's our version sometimes of worshiping it. Sometimes. How do we, anything we idolize is a terrible foundation. But whatever your foundation, your identity is, it is your God. No matter what name it goes by. So the challenge is for us to do something different. We're going to be looking at next week all kinds of, some of it's straight up practical information. Like I'm going to, I'm going to put an org chart up on the screen and show how our church operates with that kind of stuff so that you will have all that information and we can talk about what God has done in this last year. Also, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this is who we are, therefore this is what we do. So let me give you one example quickly. Who we are. We are the church. Matthew 16, 18. And Jesus said to them, he took these young men into as evil a pagan place as existed ever in the history of man. And then he asked them this question, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. This is a great compliment, but it's also a little backhanded. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know you didn't come up with that. Where did you... I guess God must have told you to say that because I know you didn't get that. But listen to what Jesus proclaims here. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The proclamation, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, he is the son of the living God, is the foundation upon which, it is the Petros, the stone, the foundation upon which we build the church. It has no meaning outside of it. Understand, this church and any church has no meaning outside of this. Any social justice that we do, any positive things we do, any racial reconciliation, any feeding of the poor, if it's not founded on this idea that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, it is a waste of our time. Its eternal significance is, is, is poor, if not just flat and meaningless. That's, that's the foundation of who we are. If any of those other things are foundations, they may be great bricks in a building, but they're terrible foundations. So this is, this is who we are. We are his, first of all, it's his church, not ours. Um, it'd be cool if we could develop that even to our language. Um, people would think we're weird if we said, you know, would you like to come visit his church this week? It's, it's ours in the sense that we've been shepherded with it, that we get to be members of it, but the truth is it's his and it's not ours. It's powerful, it's victorious, it is conquering. Understand, gates are not aggressive things. I think too often in, as in the church we think of ourselves as on the defense, that the world is pressing against us, and, and we've got these gates, and the gates of hell will not knock down our gates. Gates and gates don't run into each other, ever. Um, gates mean you're on the defense. The gates of hell are on the defense. The church is on the offense. We are gaining ground. I pray in your individual life, in our individual lives, that heaven and eternity and the proclamation of who God is is gaining ground. It is cleaning up the way we treat other people. That we don't treat other people as tools. We treat them as though they are eternal beings created in the image of God. That affects the way we speak, the language we use. It affects the way we talk to people. It affects the way we engage with people. It affects everything that we do. If we believe this, if we think we're facing the gates of hell, and by the way, the gates of hell are losing, 
They're going to lose someday. The gates of hell will not prevail. Eventually, they'll fall down. Wow. If we understand this, who we are. So what we do, a few of the things that we do, come from Acts 2. We'll talk more about this next week. We'll wrap, I'll wrap up here. But they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. So we do that. One of our pillars is devotion. We devote ourselves to these things. The apostles' teachings, they were there when Jesus taught these things. And we want to study what they, what they got from him so that we can live it out. All the other teaching, everything we do is trying to explain what he said to them so that we can learn through the power of his spirit and the power of his word. So we do. That's why we preach. This is a weird thing to do any other place in life. But as we seek to understand this together and learn and grow. And fellowship, as we become friends with one another through the power of His Spirit. The breaking of bread, yes, that it probably includes communion. The, the expression of the Passover, which we'll be doing in a few weeks. Um, and it also means um, doing what we as Baptists love to do, and that's just eat. It means donuts. So I believe this is an indication they had donuts in the first century. So, to the breaking of bread and prayer, which we're all terrible at, or at least most of us are terrible at because we all want to be in action, but to pray, that we pray together, that we thank God for the answers to prayers and we're praying together. So, all these different things. Listen, as we wrap up our time here, um, however you need to respond to what God is doing, if you don't know this God, if you've never put your faith in this God, um, this pro- you've never proclaimed this in your heart, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, I hope today is the day for that that you are able to join his church to be a part of his body, his bride. Um, if you have and you've realized, wow, I'm, I'm just living according to my plans and my agenda and my strength and all my stuff, um, then that's probably a time for repentance, to confess and realize that needs to change. I don't know. Only just between you and the Holy Spirit to, add, to figure out how you need to respond to the teaching of this. And then next week we will talk even more and more about our identity, <clears throat> who he is and therefore who we are and therefore what we ought to be and can be and are free to be doing. So let me pray and um, let the Spirit speak to you. Father, we're so grateful for the truth of your word and for the power of your church. I thank you for people, the men and women who helped get this church going. Um, First Baptist 150 years ago and South Spring, South Campus 15, 20 years ago and South Spring a year ago. And Lord, um, I pray especially for those who began, we thank you for those who began to found the church your church that proceeds back at least a couple thousand years, Lord. And because your son has always been, Lord, um, we're so grateful to the triune God for the love that you have for us, your creation. Lord, we sang about it and we learned about it today. I pray that we will be challenged and encouraged to put our faith in you and to live out the calling you have for us. Lord, I pray that we will live a life worthy of the calling with which we have been called through the power of your spirit because that's what it would take. In your son's name, amen.